Hi, and welcome to this alternative audio commentary on Annie Hall, the 1977 picture directed by Woody Allen. My name is Rob Caravaggio, robcaravaggio.blogspot.com, and if you'd like to synchronize your copy of Annie Hall to this commentary, I'll give you a countdown in a moment to help you do that. In the meantime, what you can do is locate the very start of the movie. I'm watching a Region 1 DVD here, and there is a United Artists logo that comes just before the start of the movie. When that United Artists logo fades to black, hit pause on your DVD, Blu-ray, or what have you, and that will allow us all momentarily to hit the play button together and watch the movie in perfect, synchronized harmony. Okay, if you've taken a moment to locate that sync point, you should have it paused just after the United Artists logo has faded to black. So you should have a completely black screen, frozen, staring back at you. I'm going to say 3, 2, 1, play here, and that'll be your cue to hit the play button right along with me. So, I'm going to get your finger poised on that button, as I do here. Ready? 3, 2, 1, play. And we're in Annie Hall, the title of the picture, on the screen now, if you're trying to sync up. These familiar, uh, this familiar typeface for the titles in um, Woody Allen movies, uh, usually they have that old-timey music that Woody Allen puts in his mu- movies. Uh, Woody Allen and Marshall Brickman's credit on the screen now, if you're trying to sync. Usually, yeah, usually they have that old-timey music, but here they're just uh, silent. It's almost uh, uh, a kind of weird foreshadowing of the sort of thoughtfulness that this this movie would have that prior Allen movies didn't have, a kind of melancholiness implied by the silence, maybe. But I like that. I like the idea that, um, you, you know, an artist can have uh, characteristics of their brand. You know, it's like an author that always uses the same font or the same uh, uh, sort of uh, book graphic design, or uh, things like that. I like that. I'm really excited to do this commentary. We begin here with um, immediately establishing a couple of things about the movie with this monologue by Alvy Singer, and at first we're not even sure if it's the character or if it's Alan himself. Of course, there's not a lot of space between the two in this film, and, and I'll, I'm sure I'll go into that. But uh, here's the way I see this sort of opening monologue kind of setting up the movie. In the first place, the one of the things that people always remember and one of the things that I think this movie does really well is uh, breaking down the fourth wall, as they say, uh, addressing the audience uh, with the, uh, the characters addressing the audience, mostly the Alvy Singer character, um, with the self-consciousness that they're in a story. And that breaking down the fourth wall is being set up here by Alvy uh, literally giving a, a monologue to the audience, and it's quite funny and obviously very well performed by Woody Allen, who's, in addition to being one of the best directors, is one of the best uh, stand-up comedians ever. Of course, that was really his heyday as stand-up before he started really making movies. Anyway, uh, so breaking down the fourth wall, that's being set up, but also there's something um, uh, really important being set up with that opening monologue, too, 
and it's uh, the fact that we're going to be very much in the head of our main character. This we're going to it's going to be very a very subjective story, told almost exclusively through his view, uh, point of view, and um, that accounts for a lot of the shifting chronology and or the things told out of chronological order, the sort of jumps in logic, and the sort of associative, the generally associative nature of the movie. Here we start in this wonderful flashback with this kid who has a perfect uh, resemblance to Woody Allen with those glasses. I love the way his uh, his doctor, um, the kid, comes in and, you know, his mother's distraught and he says uh, uh, he's worried about entropy, he's worried about the universe expanding. What does it all mean? And the doctor just laughs it off and brushes it aside. That's not going to happen for a very long time. Of course, the doctor is, is correct. That's not going to happen for a very long time, we don't think, but it's just... Uh, the humor that the doctor has is uh, <laughs> not, uh, you know, out of step with the mother's concerns. I, I love that sort of thing. And this will be called back to later on, the fact that his father was a bumper car dude at at uh, Coney Island. I, and, it, and it's a wonderfully subjective uh, thing that's called back to, um, the way it's called back to later in the movie. I mean, look at the way we're just um, sort of dollying across these teachers uh, it lets us know, uh, like I said, that, that that monologue at the beginning sets up, and, and so does this flashback, it sets up the fact that this is very much in the character's head, and we're seeing everything through the filter of his imagination, through, and right now through the filter of his memory. The, the child actors they got here are just phenomenal, by the way. Um, that's why, obviously, all those teachers would be teaching in different classrooms, and uh, teaching different things, but they're all sort of drawing on the same chalkboard there because we're we're seeing things, you know, through his memory. Uh, so this is not reality. Uh, this this little girl uh, is going to deliver a line about Freud and the latency period here. That is, um, she's going to say, "Jesus Christ, Alvin," and and she just she sells it because she she. Uh, I mean, look at the way the she sells it be, uh, because she. Um, here she goes. It, you really think that she knows what all that means. And, of course, a child of that age probably doesn't know what Freud is all about. Uh, perhaps she does. Certainly she does now, right? Um, but this is this is all wildly funny here, this stuff at the beginning. And, it, and it's almost a, a head fake because it kind of behaves the way Woody Allen pictures behaved up till this point. But, of course, Annie Hall is sort of a departure for him and an exciting one that he sort of became the Woody Allen we know and love with Annie Hall. I used to be a heroin addict, and now I'm a methadone addict. Is sort of like just edgy enough where you go, huh. I mean, he really knows how to structure a joke, Woody Allen. I mean, uh, that's an understatement. He's a comedic legend, obviously, but... Um, you know, we think that's the big punchline, uh, the heroin addict, methadone addict, uh, the kid saying that line, and then um, that little girl saying, I'm into leather, you know, I mean, it, it, that, and then the big punch, you know, the big punch line is just um, a wonderfully paced little joke here. Uh, in addition to all of these, uh, I, I mean, the, the film is, I mean, this shot here uh, is a characteristic sort of walk and talk in Annie Hall. Um, the characters start way out of, you know, out of focus, way in the background. We don't even know where they are. And then they sort of walk into uh, into our view, and then the, the camera will pick them up and roll with them. But um, this is really audacious stuff. Uh, my position on Annie Hall is that it, it works like gangbusters. Uh, and, it, and a movie this almost avant-garde in the, in the risks it takes usually is... Um, 
it's an experimental movie, I feel, and, and usually they're not as emotionally affecting, and I find Annie Hall very emotionally affecting, so I'll, I'll try to explain that. Tony Roberts, of course, uh, uh, the wonderful uh, staple of 70s movies. But uh, if I could just say another, another thought about that opening monologue. Uh, yeah, see how the camera's rolling with them here? Um, I mean, that's just, that's a risky shot, you know, it doesn't have to work. Uh, I'll be talking about the DP Gordon Willis, too, who had an influence on Alan's creativity during this, the production of Annie Hall. <laughs> this is, uh, this is almost a, I love these little beats that in Woody Allen movies, before Annie drives up to meet Alvy here, uh, for their date or, or their outing, um, we have this little, uh, beat where he encounters these, uh, he says, what is this, a Teamsters meeting? He encounters these sort of, uh, uh, <laughs> these sort of neighborhood guys, and uh, they, they sort of bust his chops asking for an autograph, and uh, the actor here is really, uh, it's almost like we're seeing characters like this through Alvy's point of view, right? I mean, we are seeing it through his point of view, obviously, but, but uh, I mean, the, the way he's sort of an exaggerated caricature of a, of a guy who would come up to a quasi-famous person on the street is, is sort of um, a function of uh, almost Alvy's projection of people like this, and probably Woody Allen's. Yeah, but uh, if I could just say something else about that opening monologue, uh, as I say, it sets up the fourth wall. It sets up the associative and subjective nature of how we're going to be perceiving the narrative. And it, it and the associative part of that is the, the thought I wanted to add is that, um, as I say, not, nothing in this movie should work. Uh, all of the jumps, I mean, it becomes a cartoon at one point. All of the jumps in, in logic and, and uh, the scenes that uh, don't seem to go together, that flow one to the next, um, it works because, I mean, uh, Woody Allen and Alvy Singer are very influenced by, by Freud. And um, the sort of, uh, w- the movie establishes that these associations are very much um, not just the way Alvy thinks, uh, and the way his mind works, but the way everyone's mind works. So we we understand uh, and we go with his stream of consciousness. Uh, this movie is almost his, almost the entire movie, every scene is, is in some sense, I think, his stream of consciousness. And so I think by establishing the, this kind of thing early, um, it allows us to go with it even more. Woody Allen's a huge Bergman fan. There you see, they're going to see face to face. With the chronology thing, we don't we don't start with how they meet. We won't see how Annie and Alvy meet until later. We start with a scene of conflict, uh, and we see the fundamental difference between the two of them. It will be a long time in the movie before we see how how sort of good they are together too. In that opening monologue, um, he the, the the way I think he sets up uh, uh, Woody Allen. Um, primes us for the associative leaps in the movie. Uh, and I'll comment on this famous scene, of course. But um, the way I think he sets that up is uh, right with the jokes he tells. I mean, everybody remembers the Groucho Marx joke because it has so much to do with the theme of the movie. I wouldn't want to be belong to any club that would have me as a member. But he tells two jokes. He tells the joke about the old women at the resort place who uh, the food is terrible here, oh, in such small portions. 
and that's, you know, any comedy writer or, or screenwriter would say, well, you're trying to make a point here, so just have him in the monologue, just have him use one joke to make his point. Why do you have two? He actually says at the beginning of the monologue, two jokes come to mind. And I think that's really interesting because that's how we all are, you know? It's like we can't pick one. It, it, he's, he's just going with the stream of consciousness. He's using two jokes instead of one. And, uh, and one is, we always remember more than the other, but it's just, I think there's a subtle way that uh, we're just kind of going with uh, his stream of consciousness. Alan performs that opening monologue uh, in a way that, um, you know, he's a good performer. We really see, we really feel like it's the real dude speaking to us. Now, this is a, a scene that I've just had close to my heart forever. Um, and the things Alvy says are so strange, you know, interested in Mozart, James Joyce, and sodomy, you know, uh, the way he is, is um, cutting this, this blowhard down uh, to his girlfriend uh, is just delightful, you know. Um, we've all been in these situations. This is uh, as close to a save the cat that we get with Alvy uh, because he's, he will look at the audience and he will say, look, um, ha- haven't you all already, or haven't you been in this kind of situation? Uh, he's em- he's asking us to empathize with him, and of course we say, oh yes, of course, I've been in that situation too. I love that the, the actor, this other character, just walks up and starts addressing us as well. It's almost like Wayne Campbell and Garth Algar. You know, only me and Garth can talk to the camera. I expect Alvy to say, hey, only I can talk to the camera. But this is pretty cool. Um, the guy gives his resume, you know, <laughs> And uh, we have this wonderful, this is the part that's lived in, uh, I have very close to my heart, where he just brings out Marshall McLuhan. <laughs> and, <he's, laughs> and he says, oh yeah, well I, I happen to have uh, the person you're talking about here, and he's going to tell you that you know nothing of his work. Um, if only life were like this, um, he says, uh, Alfie says to us, but life isn't like that, and I think that scene does three or four different things. Uh, all these scenes that come early in the movie are really teaching us how to watch the movie and teaching us that we just have to go with it. But uh, it, it's... Alvy's imagination isn't, you know, and in many ways his, imag- his imagination, the way he um, imagines how li- his life with Annie should be, how he should relate to women in general, uh, is not life. Life is something different, and light. And he's chagrined by that that um, discrepancy between imagination and, and reality. Uh, that's a very Freudian uh, thought I've just expressed right there, and uh, I think that's that's really coming across in that scene. Actually, Marshall McLuhan. Uh, was not Alan's first choice. And if you think about the scene, um, the man behind him who's being obnoxious is talking about Fellini and, and I think uh, some other directors. And so he's talking about film directors. And, and McLuhan, of course, was a media scholar, a scholar of communications. And um, <coughs> Pardon me. And uh, it, it makes more sense that he would bring out someone like Fellini or Luis Bunuel. Uh, that was the other director the guy was talking about. And... Um, in fact, uh, Woody Allen uh, asked Fellini and Luis Bunuel uh, independently if they would do it, and both uh, didn't do it, so he went with McLuhan. Uh, but I think that's fascinating. Woody Allen is a, a guy with a lot of heroes, and I would recommend to you uh, 
a documentary that was done for PBS's American Masters series, directed by Robert Whitey, who is, I'll link to it, who is, uh, well, he directed a lot of Curb Your Enthusiasms, uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm episodes, I should say. And uh, so he's a sort of a comedy guy. And it's like a four-hour documentary. Uh, He had some access that Woody Allen hasn't given in the past. And it's very fascinating. And so, But this was known about Woody Allen. He's loved Bergman. He's loved um, Groucho. Um, Here we have Allison Porchnik, one of uh, the non-Annies, as I think of them, in this movie that Alvy connects with at various times. I love the use of this gig. Like, it's not just he meets her at a gig years before his relationship with Annie. It's specifically a gig for an Adelaide Stevenson, uh, I guess, campaign uh, event or fundraiser. And so it um, uh, people today probably don't even know who Adelaide Stevenson is. But it, it, it at the time, it would have helped people place this in time. Okay, this was a few years, uh, some years before. Um and one of the ways we have to suspend disbelief in, in Woody, some Woody Allen movies is, is we just have to believe that a beautiful woman would, would date someone who looks like Alvy. This is a nice little, uh, there you see Gordon Willis's uh, very dark lighting in that room. Here, here's a nice little production thing. Uh, Gordy Willis shooting through this doorway. And we're only getting uh, the stage, part of the stage, and, and part of the room. You see the table numbers 22, 23. Um, and... We don't see any more of the room than that. There probably aren't very many more extras in that room or tables. And by shooting it this way and putting those table numbers, 22, 23, it it suggests uh, almost subliminally to us, um, uh, to our subconscious, there you go, Freud, uh, it suggests a bigger room where there are obviously tables 1 through uh, 21, uh, of course. Uh, so it's a nice little little production trick there. This movie was made for uh, approximately four million dollars and grossed thirty eight. It won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, and Best Actress at uh, that year's Oscars. So it cleaned up. And this whole conspiracy theorist thing—well, it's not quite a conspiracy. He's not quite a conspiracy theorist about. Um, I mean, uh, Allison sort of calls him on it and says, uh, do you think the Earl Warren would lie? And uh, But he's just uh, asking uh, asking the typical questions that you hear about the Kennedy assassination. And it's going to be another fourth wall moment where he turns to us and says, oh my, <laughs> uh, I really am using the Kennedy assassination to, to avoid sex with her. Um, and I think the use of that breaking of the fourth fourth wall in that moment is um not obviously not a realization he's having at that time this is a story that's being told uh, the whole movie is a flashback in essence uh, uh, that opening monologue is uh after he's broken up with annie he refers to it in the past tense so so this moment right here when he looks at us She's right. He speaks in the present tense, but then he speaks in the past tense. He's like, oh, she was beautiful. She was willing. Why did I, you know, why, why did I reject Alison Porchnik? So this is the Alvy, the same Alvy in the time and headspace of his opening monologue um, in that moment. And so the breaking of the fourth wall takes us actually out of the scene in certain ways uh, and in a way that I think really works.
this uh, is one of this scene is part of one of the aspects of the movie that is really heartbreaking for me. Uh, you see how w- the first couple scenes we had with Annie and Alvy, of course, were scenes of conflict, them not getting along or having some having some kind of disagreement or or clash of personalities almost. And here uh, we have this delightfully, you know, they're so cute together. These these two, they were obviously involved romantically in real life. Uh, uh, and you see the sense of humor Annie has is um, it, it's not the same as Alvy's, but they're both sort of not just not just having fun with this wild situation that they don't know how to handle these lobsters, but they're both having fun seeing the other person happy and blissful. And it doesn't come off that way the first time you see the movie. This is just a cute scene. Uh, but um, later on, there'll be a scene after he's broken up with Annie in which, uh, and we'll get to it, in which he's with another woman and it's it's this thing where uh it's just not the same and it's very i'll I'll get to it i love all the little movies that people go to see again putting us in a certain time and place uh a young annie hall is going to see the misfits (laughs) these things are particularly freudian um annie and alvy alvy this is great split screen stuff i find this effect here really holds up um <clears throat> because of the relaxed environment and you know they're so relaxed the two actors on the right um that it really does look like they're standing in the same room um alvi is escorting annie through his uh, through her own memories this is very very uh risky stuff for a movie to do this didn't have to work you know um and it doesn't and it's it's always totally clear to the audience what's going on too that that's the other thing um uh, he's he's showing her stuff that's happened in her past and and her history and uh, how could you fall for a guy like that and she and it's just uh, it actually goes handheld for a moment here uh, with this beautiful horizon shot and I always thought that was weird. We had the first mention of La Di Da there, the famous uh, <laughs> the famous line. This is really beautiful um, stuff, uh, that photography. Alan has a lot of these kind of scenes. I'm going to sort of zoom out and talk about the movie more generally. But um, just to comment on this party scene with his first wife, or I guess one of Alvy's previous wives, um, there's a lot of this kind of thing in Woody Allen movies. Uh, even in his lesser movies like Scoop, you have scenes like this where the um the Woody Allen type character or one of the Woody Allen type characters is uh just feeling like a fish out of water and out of place among snooty New York intellectuals uh as he describes Alison Porchnick Brandeis University liberal you know uh he wants to watch the Knicks while all those New Yorker people and snobs are out there hobnobbing um it's funny, you know, Woody Allen is uh, himself uh, quite an intellectual, writes for the New Yorker all the time, and um, but you have these kind of scenes in his movies, and it's almost as if he, he wants to make it clear that he was, he's, um, he's not, I mean, already we've had that scene where, where he brings out Marshall McLuhan to, to stamp, to, uh, you know, thwack that guy behind him in line, and now he's taking a swipe at this uh, soiree with all these these snobs, uh, all these PhDs, as he just said there. Um, 
So it's it's always, I mean, it's a preoccupation in Woody Allen's movies, this idea that um, you can be a smart, educated, thoughtful person who's into Ingmar Bergman and, and all that shit and, uh, and not be a snob. Uh, and he's, he's belabored the point at this point, but I, I, I tend to agree with that too. I, I kind of actually have a, a similar kind of background as Woody Allen. I mean, in the sense that we both, uh, I, I too grew up as a kind of, he grew up in a very earlier time, but I grew up in a kind of New York city neighborhood kid. Um, all of these scenes in bed, there's a lot of scenes happening in bed, waking up and going to bed. So, um, let me, uh, talk about, uh, well, let me mention this. Um, there's a, a book by, uh, someone named Robert K. Elder, and the name of the book is he uh, he compiled the the name of the book is uh, the film that changed my life thirty directors on their epiphanies in the dark, and uh, it's just a, a collection of interviews that Robert K. Elder did with uh, uh, directors about the film that they feel changed their life. And John Waters is in here, Peter Bogdanovich is in here, Danny Boyle, uh, and many others. Um, and the first, uh, if you want to take a look at this book, I do recommend it. The first uh, interview in the book is Ryan Johnson, the director of uh, the Brothers Bro- the Brothers Bloom and Brick, and uh, most recently Looper. And he's his uh, film that changed his life uh, is Annie Hall. And Elder and he, uh, the interview that Elder conducts with. Uh, Ryan Johnson is just a fascinating and very thoughtful. I can see why he put it first in the book, uh, unless he put put the interviews in some kind of uh, alphabetical order or something. But um, it's just the most thoughtful interview about Annie Hall. And uh, I want to read uh, just a very short little thing um, that Ryan Johnson says in that interview about Annie Hall, because I, I agree with it and uh, see if you agree with it, too. By the way, here we're getting the way that Annie and Alvy meet. Um so we're getting that sort of after we've already seen them in their relationship at various stages. Uh, and this little scene that we have here, um, I love it for so many reasons. Um, the main reason is that it inverts the the love movie or romantic comedy trope of um, the guy being the nervous or bumbling one. <clears throat> And the, you know, Annie is the one who's nervous and she likes him and she doesn't know what to do. She's scared she's going to look stupid. And, um, well, actually, this is this has been a trope, but they're inverting the trope. But of course, there are many older screwball comedies in which, uh, you know, Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant had a couple of movies where, where Catherine Hepburn was sort of the zany one and and Cary Grant was, you know, Catherine Hepburn was the one who was infatuated, you know, bringing up baby and. Um, I think another one um, that, that they did was kind of like that. But it, it does in, invert a lot of those love movie tropes, and uh, I'll try to point some out. But anyway, here's, uh, here's what Ryan Johnson said in that interview. Again, this is uh, Robert Elder, the film that changed my life. Uh, this is Ryan Johnson speaking. Quote, speaking about Annie Hall, quote, this was a film that broke so many rules in terms of film narrative, and it moved me in a way that very few other films have moved me. 
that's something that I pray to God if I'm able to keep making movies, I can only hope, 20 years down the line maybe, I'll be able to approach. It's magical to me, to this day, I can watch the film and try to analyze it and try to figure out how this little movie works, and it's almost impossible. I just end up getting lost. It's not the sort of thing I, I can analyze. For me, watching the film is like a kid watching a magic trick. I, uh, end quote, I really agree with that. <laughs> I think it is like a magic trick. Uh, and the reason I feel that way, and they speak about this in the interview, uh, again, that was Ryan Johnson. Uh, I, they speak about this in the interview uh, that they did. Uh, I love that they have the bridge behind them in these driving shots, too. It's beautiful. It is like a magic trick because it, it's not, it, it really, none of this should work. Uh, the chronology, the, um, the leaps in logic the movie takes, the, or the out of chronology, the leaps in logic it takes. This is a nice little payoff later on where, um, by the way, that um, Dwayne, uh, Annie's sister, we find drives just like she does. <laughs> I still, I, I, ever since I saw this movie the first time, I've always used that line that Alvy uses there when someone parallel parks poorly and I'm a passenger. I, I say, it's okay, I'll walk to the curb from here. <laughs> <clears throat> When I say none of it should work, um, this movie is often referenced as um, being in a movie that was saved in editing, quote-unquote. And I think that, well, what people mean by that, by this, is I, I really think it was created in post, I, in the sense that um, they weren't, uh, Alan wasn't exactly sure um, what movie he was making, the the original treatment, the original script that they sold to United Artists, uh, that Marshall Brickman, Alan's co-writer, and he uh, actually had three strands, uh, three storylines, uh, or three as three three stories that were being told about this Alvy character. One was uh, had to do with um, his romantic relationships, and that's sort of the Annie Hall thing. <clears throat> Another was um, uh, kind of. Uh, the banality of life, I think, is the way they phrase it um, when I looked it up. And uh, and then the other is just this idea of character and Alvy always trying to prove himself. By the way, Alvy is very unfair to Sylvia Plath, who was a, a mighty great poet, and he just brushes her aside as uh, uh, some sort of lunatic. Uh, that book he tossed aside was Ariel, which is a, one of the best poetry books of all time. Even uh, Dwayne, played by Christopher Walken, we'll meet him later, even Dwayne's portrait there, kind of with the four uh, quadrants, you know, the, the four faces, uh, it kind of suggests his um, confused personality or, or uh, the discord in his personality. It's funny. Uh, you, can, you can kind of read that into it if you wanted. There were there were those three three strands and and uh, the influence of Gordy Willis and of um, uh, uh, certainly Brickman, but really uh, Gordy Willis uh, and Allen has spoken about this. Gordy Willis was an influence on Woody Allen uh, at this time and and sort of making this movie into something different than the screenplay originally envisioned it to be. Famously, there's. Um, uh, and Ralph Rosenblum, uh, of course, the editor, had a huge impact on on 
how Annie Hall became Annie Hall. Um, if you really look at the movie scene by scene, you can really see it. Um, uh, you really see just how audacious it is and how crazy it is. I mean, it's just way out of chronology and, um, you know, movies that play with chronology like that, the ones that do it right are, um, telling the story out of order because that's how the story makes sense in terms of the thematics or the, um, it's, it's almost like, like Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message. And when you have an out of chronology story, I think sometimes, the way it's being told is part of the story. Uh, you see that in a movie like Pulp Fiction. Except here, um, we're very much in the one character's heads. By the way, on my DVD here, the subtitles are doing a very good job because in the original film, we're getting subtitles here that tell us what the, char- what the character is actually thinking. And so uh, whoever did the subtitles for this DVD is doing a good job of differentiating uh, between the two. But we're very much in Alvy's head and... So it almost makes perfect sense that we would get this out of order. And the payoff that comes at the end when we see finally how, how their relationship resolved and ended, um, that payoff makes more sense when you tell the story the way it's being told here. Ralph Rosenblum, the editor on this film, wrote a book. And it's a famous book in the annals of uh, you know movie making and people who are way into movies, um, and it's called uh, When the Shooting Stops, the Cutting Begins. I've always liked the vaguely, or, or <laughs> deliberately, I should say, the deliberate um, uh, violent imagery of that title because that's, uh, you know, you can really do violence to an artistic vision if you uh, cut a movie uh, uh, against the director's uh, original intentions, as, as Hitchcock knew. Um, but in that book, when the shooting stops, the, uh, cutting begins, Rosenblum talks about, uh, he goes into detail about how he and Woody Allen worked through the story of Annie Hall, uh, the story in Annie Hall, how they cobbled together this movie that was extremely different from what they, uh, what Woody Allen originally thought it would be. And then the movie goes on to win best picture. So it's sort of a, it's sort of a model, I think, or a great example of, and I think deservedly win Best Picture. Uh, and so I think it's a great example of how we think of film editing or, you know, um, post-production in general, or even shooting a film. We think of production and post-production. Uh, often some people think of production as a cold, critical thing where you're just trying to shoot the script or you're just trying to you know what you're after and you're trying to get it um this little scene here has a great payoff later on too when a a very different annie at a very different stage in the relationship gives a much better performance uh i think uh diane keaton is more compelling in the bad performance than later on in the good one she gives because it's she looks like a, a, a reasonably talented. She she does a good job of looking like a reasonably talented person who's just giving a bad performance because of the vibes in the room, maybe. But I I do I I yeah the Rosenblum book uh, is. Uh, 
if you read that, I really think you'll you'll see how this movie is um, a tremendous example of how post production and editing is not or doesn't have to always be this clinical thing where you're you're piecing together things to achieve a predetermined artistic vision uh, or you're or you're assembling parts uh, that create an artistic vision. This is so um, just a lovely moment where he says, let's kiss now so that we can enjoy our our meal together. Uh, and she's into it. She kisses him. I mean, it just it, it, we're getting one of those scenes again where we see them clicking. We see them harmon. We see why she likes him. We see why he likes her. Um, yeah, I, you know, I do think that's true. People do think of, of you know, Rosenblum, I think, even comments on it that it's not, you know, editing a film together or post-production can be for for Rosenblum and, and Woody Allen with Annie Hall. It was an extremely creative time. It wasn't clinical at all. It was a time. I mean, it was a time at first of great confusion, as Rosenblum writes, but ultimately they they were able to see that this movie was, you know, that the most compelling strand or the most compelling thing about this movie was what it had to say about relationships. And, um, you know, so long as we're on the, the Sigmund Freud uh, track, uh, I think this movie is in many ways about male narcissism, a certain kind of American male narcissism uh, with respect to heterosexual male narcissism with respect to relationships. Uh, I think Alvy, you know is an atypical man in many ways, but, uh, you know, his sort of, that thing about Groucho and I wouldn't want to belong to any club that would have me, you know, and a lot of the things he says when he's uh, uh, pondering his relationship um, with, um, and, and a lot of his insecurities with Annie, uh, you know, doesn't want her to, wants her to read certain books and not other books, doesn't want her to take classes so much or is uncomfortable with her, um, uh, being around Tony Lacey, uh, you know, played by Paul Simon. Uh, I think, I think it strikes, you know, a lot of Alan's movies about romance and love I, don't resonate with me, or some of them don't resonate, but this one, I think he just strikes a lot of very true chords. Um, the only, uh, with this little scene where he's making fun of the passers-by, the only one, um, that always cracks me up is the last one, I believe, where he, he talks about the guy who's um, on his way to the Truman Capote look-alike contest. <laughs> uh, yeah, here we go. Well, the the line he says about mustache wax about the other guy is very, um, very funny, too. Great Gordy Willis, ladies and gentlemen, with this, uh, I mean, Gordy Willis, if I've said this on, a, on the Godfather commentary, if you have movies that you like from the 70s, chances are Gordy Willis shot it, you know, whether it's All the President's Men or this or The Godfathers, um, the bridge looks beautiful behind them. Um, but this is very dark, you know, this is lit very, very dimly and it's this, this classic shot. And on the DVD cover I have, this shot has kind of been brightened up because you see that Gordy Willis had some really deep shadows, uh, didn't, didn't try to, um, I mean, 
Diane Keaton's face is, is very dimly shadowed under that hat. And uh, I think it's sort of beautiful. It gives, it gives the moment uh, that deep, that deepness, that rich, uh, those rich shadows gives the moment a, a sort of mystique that is right for what's trying to be achieved in the story there. It's this sort of loving moment. And then the movie cuts right to this, right? This squabble they're having and and Alvy's insecurity, the foreshadowing of bugs, (laughs) you know, which will come up later. You notice how brightly, I mean, look at those windows behind Alan here. I mean, you notice how brightly lit this is compared to the prior scene. Uh, this is something that um, Gordy Willis usually isn't going to have many scenes this bright, but Alan needs it to be this bright because that's sort of the point. This is the li- the cold light of reality, maybe compared to the the storybook uh, "Kiss by the Bridge" scene that we had uh, before. Before this movie, uh, I should have mentioned this at the beginning. Um, uh, I think I did, but I didn't follow up. This movie represents a huge departure for Woody Allen in his career. Um, with this movie, he became the Woody Allen we knew him, we know him as today, artistically. Um, this movie was extremely I mean just the emotional resonance the, the it's so grounded in rea- in the reality of the characters yet it's so whimsical and, and some of the comedy is downright outrageous but it, it, that grounding in reality and and being you know with these characters who clearly inhabit our our real world and and the emotional resonance uh, was not something that Alan had done in his movies before his movies were much more contrived and 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 not taking as many risks uh as this movie takes and and as this movie um was forced to take here's another this is another characteristic gordy willis shot shooting through a door doorway uh into that room um does have a way of putting us there doesn't it but um if you look at uh if you want to pull up IMDb and look at um, the movies Woody Allen did before this movie. You'd see movies like, I can't remember if it's five, five or six movies directed before this, but you see movies like Take the Money and Run, uh, Love and Death, Sleeper, which is a very funny movie, um, Play It Again, Sam, Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Sex But Were Afraid to Ask, which is an extremely funny movie. Um, but those movies were very... Um, comedy based and I would say that this movie is a a romantic comedy that's based in uh, real emotion I mean this is an emotional story not a funny story and you if you wait till the ending I mean you'll see the note that this movie ends on uh, is an emotional note of like huh a melancholy or a kind of realization about the the realities of life this is just a basic uh, that effect with Annie Hall getting up uh, out of her out of body experience. I think is just uh, I mean a, an effects person would be able to tell you, but I, I think that's just a the basic opacity thing that they they can do with um, an exposure 
but I'm not sure how that effect was achieved. I didn't I didn't look into it, but it looks like it's just the the sort of um, I think it's called just the the opacity. It's a thing that they can do, uh, you know, uh, fairly um, readily, uh, even at the time. What's Up Tiger Lily, I think, was uh, another movie that Alan did way before this. And none of them are like, I mean, this was a big surprise. Um, And he really, Alan himself felt that this movie represented him, um, him graduating to another level of filmmaker, being a filmmaker more like the ones he admired, Fellini and Bergman, someone who's going to take risks. Um, He has a wonderful quote in which he says, uh, with Annie Hall, I finally had the courage to abandon broad comedy. Uh, And the quote goes on, but finally had the courage to abandon broad comedy and abandon it for something more real. And his best movies, I think Woody Allen's best movies, are really about um, characters that uh, might have outrageous things happen to them, but are are very grounded in in things that we all recognize about our emotional lives. Hannah and her sisters being uh, like another example, you know. And then we have scenes that are just kind of, that just bring us... uh, show us sort of help us empathize with Alvy. I mean, the fact that he has to write for this hack, uh, this hack comedian, uh, uh, and then he's at the university, uh, gig here, I think university of Wisconsin, where he's does well with the crowd. Um, these are scenes that aren't really telling us anything about his relationship with Annie. But they're telling us what his life is like. And, I mean, we, we go back to his childhood, it seems, and the, the fairies' flashbacks. I mean, it's really an effort to make us understand why Alvy's the way he is. And, and there are certain things that we'll never understand about him because he's so eccentric. A lot of the jokes he's telling here at this university gig, the way this is shot, it looks almost like... Um, that scene in Rushmore, the Wes Anderson film, where the red curtains and Max Fisher comes out, and that, that, that just flat angle of him on stage, and then the flat angle of the audience. Um, but, well, I mean, ultimately, we have this backstage moment where the scene is with him and sort of Annie being excited for him and supporting him. And The um, and this is something that is probably on IMDb uh, on the the facts. The, what do they call it? The um, trivia or shit like that on IMDb, where um, the original. But it's it is true. Uh, unlike some of the stuff you'll see on IMDb, that's Colleen Dewhurst, of course, as Mrs. Hall. The um, original working title for that movie with the three strands that they wrote, uh, Brickman and Allen wrote. The working title was Anadonia. Um, The inability to experience pleasure is what the word Anadonia means, but you can see why they would scrap that title. It's because uh, most people don't know what the word means, for one thing. Now, this this, um, is very cool to me. Um, The way he's all of a sudden sitting there with a with a Hasidic outfit on and the long beard 
and it appears to be not... I mean, these people, we don't have any real evidence that Annie's relatives are, are anti-Semites that only see uh, a hated Jew when they look at Alvy. What they're seeing, what we're seeing there is what Alvy thinks they think of him. It's sort of that um, paranoia he was talking to the Tony Roberts character about in a couple scenes about uh, the someone who says, uh, gee, today, and, and the person says to Alvy, uh, no, Jew, not did you, Jew. Uh, that sort of um, paranoia that's always on his mind. Uh, uh, of course, not always paranoia. Anti-Semitism is a very real thing. One of the many split screens here. Uh, this is, uh, I especially like that Alvy's family is not his family today, but a flashback. You know, they're clearly in period. They're years before, as he remembers him uh, them as a child. And almost, um, take. I mean, they take up three-fourths of the screen, and Annie's family just takes up one-fourth. <laughs> Because they're so loud and boisterous and so unlike Annie's family, even the textures of their environment, their dining room, are are darker and dimmer than Annie's family. Um, And the way it's composed there, the split screen, uh, Alvy's father with the mustache seems to take the place of Annie's father at the head of the table, if you go back and look at that. So very carefully done, you know, that, that, that split screen stuff and all these little tricks and and um, all these little pirouettes, if you will, that the movie does, it's all really carefully done. Just get a little water here. Well, we can credit Woody Allen, I guess. Oops. We can credit Woody Allen, I guess, for discovering the comedic potential of Christopher Walken's bizarreness (laughs) because this is an early uh, Walken scene of Walken Walkenizing and he did the deer hunter right around this time Uh, I don't know if it's before or after I can't remember deer hunter 77 78 Um, but he does the deer hunter right around this time wins the academy award uh, for a very different kind of performance but it's um you know, the Alvy, it's one of the lines where Alvy gives it that punchline of, uh, I'm due back on Earth. And uh, it's exactly what we expect him to say. And there, there's a couple, I think it works there, but there's a couple other moments where he says exactly what we expect him to say. And I think it, they should have taken out the line of dialogue maybe and just have it done with a look. These, again, these walk and talks, the way they're shot. You know, the camera was just holding on one of those brownstone walk-ups at first, and then uh, Alan and, and Keaton walk into frame, and then the camera picks them up. That's usually not how it's done in Hollywood movies, you know? I mean, that is, that's very uh, French New Wave, or, you know, it's, 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 uh, there are all these little stylistic things that are just daring, uh, that are just not the way it's usually done. And it doesn't have to work. It doesn't have to come off. So we see Alvy suspects that he's have she's having an affair with um, her professor, and it is his. Uh, he of course realizes later that uh, same thing with the Tony Lacey character that it's just it's just a function of his own insecurity. It's not, you know, he doesn't realize that Annie loves him, 
and he doesn't want her to uh, grow uh, he, in a way. It's a, it's a deeply insecure kind of thing. That's why the scene where she does grow and she has that nice performance, that successful performance at the nightclub is, is so, uh, I think, so sad because it's one of the scenes where we start to realize like, oh, she's, she's growing, he's not. The penis envy joke, another Freud reference. You know, Alvy saying he's one of few males that doesn't suffer from. <laughs> that is very funny. As far as uh, how this movie became so successful um, artistically, anyway, um, I mentioned Gordy Willis's influence. Uh, and Rosenblum's influence. Gordy Willis, uh, there's a couple things that are listed at various uh, sources uh, that have written about this movie um, mention that there was all kinds of scenes that Alan wanted to shoot, uh, or that Alan wanted to include, at least, in the movie, that Willis either talked him out of or persuaded him that the movie would be better. Uh, one of the things was, or, or the movie that would... The movie would be better if it focused on Annie Hall and, and Alvy's relationship. And there was a whole... So that's why we have um, the ex-wife and Alison Porchnick and the Shelley Duval character uh, that Alvy dates are all kind of um, not given short shrift, but they're all not uh, gone into too deeply. Uh, they just get a scene or two, uh, and they just serve as these kind of beats uh, where we get to see Alvy's past. Um now, the fact that he just turns to us, uh, says, you see, I'm not crazy, uh, you see, and he, and he just continues the conversation in the scene. Um, <clears throat> I mean, people see that kind of thing all the time now in movies, so, in bad movies, too, so today we don't think that much of it, but, I mean, that was really, that, I can't stress it enough, it really didn't have to work, it really didn't have to come off successfully, um, uh, and in fact, in Woody Allen's next film, Interiors, uh, a lot of the daringness that made Annie Hall so great was a attempted in some sense in Interiors. And Interiors, unfortunately, was one of his uh, one of his worst movies. Uh, it was not not uh, not very inspired. Um, sincere movie, earnest an earnest movie, but not not very inspired. I love this scene, you know, I mean, the movie is just wild uh, with the stuff we see Alvy do. He's just stopping people in the street, taking an informal survey, asking them these questions. And um, I absolutely adore this. This is the problem with watch, with doing commentary on a comedy is you just you laugh at everything. But um, the two actors here, uh, the two people he stopped, uh, I love the way those two actors play, play it because uh, and then he goes up to the cop on the horse uh, those people in the background there might be people just watching because a movie's being shot. I'm not sure. It looks like that. And and then it becomes a cartoon. Unbelievable. Uh, absolutely unbelievable uh, that any of this works. But, uh, yeah, the, the two actors that he stops there, I love their performance if you, if you watch the, how they play it because... Um, they don't try to be the thing that gets the laugh. It's almost, uh, they were probably directed that way, but, um, you know, they were probably directed to play it a certain way, but I, I, I like the way it ended up uh, being played because 
the the thing they say is going to be what gets the laugh if they play it straight they they play it grounded in reality and and not play it big or play it uh slapsticky or something and and so when alvi stops them the way they respond to his questions matter of factly um, he asks a deeply personal question about their relationship, and they respond as if they're giving him directions to Fifth Avenue or something. Um, just totally matter-of-factly, totally casual. Uh, well, I, I don't, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't have anything to say. Uh, <laughs> I'm completely vapid, and so, and so am I. Um, again, we're in Alvi's head. We're, we're, um, we're seeing the way in which the world makes sense by getting not just a character's point of view, but his stream of consciousness. Uh, and that's what I think makes this Alvy Singer character so much more endearing than some of the other characters Alan himself has played in his movies. Um, <clears throat> a couple years later, or a few years later, he would, in Manhattan, he would play a 40-ish man who... Uh, late 40s man who's dating a, you know, a teenager, Muriel Hemingway, played by Muriel Hemingway, a, a gorgeous a young Muriel Hemingway. And uh, we just don't, and at least for me, I, I like Manhattan, but we just don't empathize with him. We just don't feel for him the way we feel for Alvy. Alvy can't help himself, you know, he's, he's a prisoner of his own personality flaws, just as we all are. <laughs> Shelley Duval. Uh, Never she does she get enough credit? I know she's become like a a cult hero. You know, people like to say they like Shelley Duvall, or, or but I don't think she ever got enough credit. I think she 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 did good work. I don't know if uh, it just occurred to me now to to say this some. Um, I don't know if Woody Allen ever mentioned this anywhere, but um, he's way into Bergman. And when I was preparing to do this commentary, I realized that there's an Ingmar Bergman movie called The Passion of Anna. Um, I don't actually like the movie that much, but um, I like Bergman. And in that movie, um, the characters break the fourth wall and uh, sort of explain what's going on in the story to the audience or comment on it and explain... Uh, who they are and what they're about, about, and then continue in the movie. So maybe that was uh, something that Woody Allen had, I'm sure he had seen it, and uh, maybe that he felt it was permission granting in some way, or gave him license to experiment with that, because he's way into Ingmar Bergman. Uh, Cries and Whispers and The Seventh Seal and uh, Wild Strawberries are are really sort of important films for uh, Woody Allen, uh, and he explains a little more about that, I think, uh, in, I think there was a documentary about Bergman I saw where he sort of explained some of it, some of his, some of why those movies were so important to him, or why those movies were so important to him, <laughs> in National Review. That's almost, uh, you know, the fact that he's disgusted to see her with a National Review is, um, I don't want to say it's referenced in an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm, uh, but there was an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm where Larry David is about to um, uh, make out or have sex with this 
actress that he's trying to date, <clears throat> pardon me, that he's trying to date, and um, as soon as he goes in to kiss her, he sees uh, a picture of George W. Bush on her dresser, or on her, her mirror or something, and he goes, you're a Republican? And she says, yes, and he just gets up with this disgusted Larry David face. Uh, very funny. So maybe maybe he was thinking about this that little moment in Nanny Hall where Alvy sees uh, sees the National Review makes the crack about William F. Buckley. You know what they do in this scene is pretty cool um, because it's another romantic comedy trope, and we've seen it. You've seen it in romantic comedies where the 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 man has moved on and he's at the other woman's house or is in bed with another woman. The black soap. <laughs> um, minstrel show uh he's in bed with another woman as alvy was and his ex calls and she says there's a spider here come kill it and he gets up and runs to her and leaves the one woman to go assist her leaves the embrace of one woman to go assist her we see that all the time but something about the way it's done in annie hall is you know i dig it i dig it even though it's a a time-worn trope we just got past it, but the way Gordy Willis uh, and Alan decided to shoot Alvy killing the bug in the bathroom with the tennis racket, it, which, you know, there are all these little callbacks to, uh, you know, th- th- that's the same tennis racket she had in her bag, the Dunlop tennis racket. And, uh, you know, a scene like that doesn't have to play realistic because a filmmaker might want us to see the spider or might bring us too close to to Alvy in the bathroom. But that... Willis and, and Alan shot that from outside the bathroom through a doorway. We only see half of, you know, uh, Alvy, and we don't see any of what he's doing. And his movements are, we just see enough of it to where we really buy that he's going toe-to-toe with a, a spider in there. Um, I don't know, just little little decisions like that that are so, so uh, prudent, you know, so... Uh, so wise to shoot it that way and instead of trying to make us see the spider or instead of as a story point making a big deal of the spider where is it what is it doing it's just uh, the spider's not the point and you know a good storyteller knows that the spider in this context is not the point So I was, um, I was a kid in the seventies and, um, my pal, who's a little older than me when I was uh, talking to her about this, uh, she said that that's a nice shot of the bridge too, of a bridge. Um, she said that she felt that this movie and she was in New York during the seventies, um, she, she, she felt this movie captured New York City in the 70s better than any other movie in the 70s did. Uh, and I never thought of it like that as a movie ca- capturing the 70s or capturing New York, but it, it's, I, that's always been an interesting, uh, sort of conversation about movies, you know, uh, a movie that captures a particular era or a decade. Um, I, I felt like the social network captured I did a commentary on it. I mean, I felt like it captured a lot of what the aughts were, were, uh, let alone were about, and a lot of what what was happening to culture 
Um, this movie has a lot of nice New York shots. Maybe that's what she's reacting to. Now, this is, um, once again, the Tony Roberts character is included here, but this is Alvy, once again, escorting two other characters through his memories. Um, this is kind of has a, a an oblique relationship to Bergman's Wild Strawberries, in which a man, an older man, looks at his, sort of looks at his past. But, um, I mean, there, there's something about the reality of the scene that's playing out with all these people in the household and Alvy's memories and the cat versus the casualness of, um, Tony Robertson and, and Keaton and Alan in the background. You see, I, I, I like here that they're not walking around. They're sort of at a, at a, a respectful distance, you know, uh, almost like they're at a zoo, <laughs> you know? And Tony Roberts there is wearing a, a half trench coat, right? Is that, I think they call that a half trench with the long sleeves. I think I, I have one of those someplace in case I want to be a half detective or something. No, I really, I think I have one. I don't know if it's called a half trench. So I haven't said much about um, the whole thing with Woody Allen and Diane Keaton. I mean, it's not super interesting to me, I guess. Uh, they they were a couple and I, I guess maintained um, a civil and, and friendly relationship after they'd, they'd broken up. Um, and uh, this movie has been read by many and certainly can be read as a... Um, as a as in part about his relationship with Keaton. Now here's here's the big and she's singing seems like old times too. But here's her her wonderful performance that probably got her the Oscar or got her lots of Oscar votes just this uh, it's really it's it's kind of like what Naomi Watts does in Mulholland Drive. It, it's the contrast between the the poor performance of this uh, in this nightclub that she gave earlier in the movie, and now this a completely self-possessed, charming, and affecting performance um, that she gives now. Uh, it, it's the contrast that after the you know after you see both in the movie makes you realize, oh wow, that was a real actress. She she was selling both of those things effectively. Um, yeah, and it. This is a sad scene, though, ultimately. Um, it's almost pitch black. I, the way she's costumed with the, the black uh, jacket and the the rose, or the what is that, some sort of uh, lapel uh, carnation or something. Um, but the way she's co- she was costumed there, she seemed to be emerging out of the darkness. Um, you know, like emerging out of the shadows. Even, even the hair framing her head is like... Um, fading into into that black background yeah it really is a good performance uh, Diane Keaton was uh she was good looking too but she I mean she was a a talented um actress I, I've always liked her she she wrote a memoir I think last year and I I was gonna read it I read a couple of reviews then it 
they were not they were not good and they said some things that made me not want to read it anymore but uh her talent as an actress was you know obviously she you know she had the godfather she had this um but she was always you know she was always good um i think her the movie she did with woody allen really exploited her talents the best uh, uh she's very funny in that movie sleeper i mentioned uh, which is just this zany comedy about time travel um it's sort of classic woody allen shtick predates Annie Hall. Oh, Paul Simon. Now, okay, I'm a big, I'm a huge Paul Simon fan. Uh, I don't know what the fuck he, I mean, (laughs) they've got those women he's with that tower over him. So he's kind of like a version of, a West Coast version of Alvy in a way, but the opposite of Alvy in a way too. But, I I mean, I don't know, I was going to say, I don't know what the fuck his... uh, his hair it happened it was happening with Paul Simon's hair in these years um he looks like uh it's kind of an Oompa Loompa haircut right like the Oompa Loompas had hair like that in the original uh Charlie and the Chocolate Factory (laughs) and they kind of had a they had faces like Paul Simon's too but no I'm a big Paul Simon fan and I've always been I always thought he was just sort of perfect in the, I mean, he's very, he's, he's plays this very real. And I think he, he would have had no way of knowing really that he was making a different, I mean, he would have known Woody Allen's work to this point, his movies, and they were all these, uh, as we say, broad comedies. And he plays this very real for someone who probably didn't know that or had no way of knowing that this would become, um, a, a movie that is grounded in reality and that uh, the humor is is the humor of the movie is what makes the rea- the emotional stakes of the movie so unfunny you know if that makes any sense i'm not sure it does but it <laughs> it, it sticks the knife in while we're laughing you know it, it makes us feel for these characters and and get them but yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge Paul Simon fan, and the uh, the Tony Lacey character is is sort of a, <laughs> really quite a, a, a creation. I do think that you know he's diminutive, and he's and he's you know has dates these women that are taller than him, so he's like Alvy. But Alvy is the whole se- series and sequence in this movie where he's on the West Coast and um, he's the fish out of water thing. Alvy doesn't belong there. It's it's really uh, I think one of the better sequences in the movie with the Tony Roberts character is just completely at ease out there. I think his character's name is Rob. In fact, I know it is. Uh, but Tony Roberts is uh, one of those uh, actors that when you see him, you just think, oh, this is a 70s movie. Yeah. <laughs> she looks like she's wearing Crocs there, Annie. Now, this is like one of the better... Um, I feel like one of the better jokes in the movie, uh, an effective use of split screen too. Like it's not just like movies like 
fucking Charlie's Angels full throttle that just use split screen because isn't it cool to use split screen? Um, there, the split screen is really is really getting a very important point across about these two characters. It's telling the story. Uh, and once again, I like that Alvy takes up about two thirds of the screen and she takes up about one third with her with her therapist. But um, it's one of the better jokes in the in the movie, uh, or at least one of the jokes that the screening, the one screening of Annie Hall I ever was at, uh, it got the huge, uh, the, the one huge belly laugh, uh, where everybody was just, uh, in hysterics was that one, uh, where he says, uh, the therapist says, how often do you make love? He, he says, and, uh, Alvy says almost never like three times a week. And Annie's, therapist asks her the same question she says constantly three times a week i mean the fact that it's probably normal a normal amount of sex for a couple but um the fact that their perception of it is so their perception of the reality of their relationship is so different and and but it's not just that their their worldview is so different Uh, half glass full or glass half full glass half empty I always think this guy is Gabe Kaplan, the guy with the big mustache, the cocaine guy. But I'm sure he is not. Kaplan would have probably been doing Welcome Back, Cotter at this time. <laughs> this this shot in front of... I mean, it, it emphasizes that the sun is out and it's hot and we're in California, but this lens flare with the sun and we're in front of the car and we have all that windshield glare... Uh, that this this here in front of the car with the rig in front of the car that this never worked for me i don't know i mean we we're getting that it's bright out and it's you know the sun is out but um the santa claus in in the 90 you know the that we just passed the christmas decorations uh, when it's this sunny out is what and the palm trees do it enough i just we can't really see the characters here Originally, they, the Tony Roberts character is, they were going to do, uh, there was much more uh, of him and his storyline and his, um, the whole friendship between he and Alvy and uh, you see them here in this um, television uh, production room. Um, there was a lot more of the Tony Roberts character and I, I believe... Um, Actually, my memory is so fucked. Actually, I I don't know if I'm confusing Roberts with someone else here, but I believe um, Tony Roberts and Woody Allen were, uh, uh, you know, Woody Allen liked him a lot. I believe that was Tony Roberts. That Woody Allen really liked using him in in a movie and enjoyed his company and uh, and was chagrined that the character of Rob is just kind of um, the character that you get sometimes in love movies or romantic movies, romantic comedies, where it's that that buddy or that friend who um, maybe their storyline gets resolved, maybe not, but they're just kind of there to... Um, so the so the character, in this case Alvy, can kind of think out loud or someone who can bear witness to what's going on. 
Let me just get some more. I'm sorry, I'm just adjusting my microphone here so I can actually see the screen. Sorry about that. Oh, what kind of Mercedes is that? Can't see it. I've never I I mean I know what kind it is, but I can't remember the class, I guess. People don't like when I talk about cars in the in the commentary well I can see why that'd be obnoxious the whole thing with um, Rob the Tony Roberts character calling um, calling uh, Alvy Max uh, was set up uh, early in the movie a lot of times it was set up in that long shot where they're they're they come walking from a great distance away and the camera picks them up um a lot of people don't remember it and it actually confuses them uh i've had actually had this conversation a couple times and i've seen the movie with people about uh, why was he calling him max well early earlier we had that scene early on where he says um uh, alvy actually says it's the first scene with them and alvy says well why do you why you call why are you calling me max he says it's a good name and uh, tony roberts says it's a good name for you um, and he calls him Max again here. I don't really know what the joke is or what, uh, what it, it tells us something about the Tony Roberts character that he's just kind of this, um, that he has a, a sense of humor, uh, that is, uh, sort of wacky, um, and that he's assertive in a certain kind of way, but I don't, I don't know what the, I never got what that joke is, and I always thought maybe it was, uh, jettisoned at some point where maybe there was some kind of payoff with that whole calling him Max that just never made the movie. Um, who knows? Um, this uh, again, I, I do think he's <laughs> Tony Lacey is kind of a a West Coast Max. You see his girlfriend there towering over him. Boy, that really is like Willy Wonka hair, isn't it? Oopa Loopa hair. So what was Paulson? We're gonna have a the Jeff Goldblum sighting here in a moment. The famous Jeff Goldblum sighting. Annie would be probably kind of warm in in her outfit. Uh, but sort of, the, it's that thing of her dressing like a, a dress using male clothes, I guess, but that, that's a woman's pantsuit, I guess. But yeah, Paul, Paul Simon would have been, uh, in his, kind of in his second span of his heyday here. There's Goldblum. What was Goldblum up to here? I guess, uh, I guess a couple years after that, after this, he had... Uh, well, in 1980, I think he has that. Uh, when did they do the right stuff? Was it 80? Um, but he's in the right stuff with Harry Shearer. He plays those. He plays one of. He, he and Harry Shearer play those two guys from from uh, the government uh, who are briefing Eisenhower, and they come and they show up and and try to talk to the test pilots about being part of the uh, about being NASA test pilots. And he has a couple of really funny scenes with Harry Shearer in uh, the right stuff and 
I remember when that, um, the first time I saw that movie, years and years, it was probably before The Simpsons had their own series, the first time I saw the right stuff, and I actually remember thinking, like, who who are those funny couple of guys? And one was Harry Shearer, the other is, is Goldblum. It's funny how compositions, I don't think people are trying to, uh, it's a natural composition for a plane that has two seats like this, but it's funny how compositions in movies, especially if movies have the same subject matter, um, remind you of other movies where, you know, that scene where they're sitting next to each other on the plane sometimes reminds me of that, the ending of Say Anything, the Cameron Crowe movie with, um, Ione Sky and John Cusack sitting next to each other on the plane. It, but that was the scene where we had the, um, I love that all the poetry books are hers, all of them. <laughs> but that scene, uh, we had um, one of the more quoted things from Annie Hall, that the relationship is like a, a shark. A shark has to keep moving, and what we have is a dead shark. This whole Christmas time breakup thing, or the Christmas time, you know, the, the, the mechanics of breaking up, of putting things in boxes, and what's mine, and what's yours, and the fact that it's happening uh, during the holiday period, um, and the fact that they don't play it as somber, you know, they, they remain the characters, you see, I mean, <clears throat> I do think Woody Allen is a good actor when he's, when he's, um, when he's sort of, uh, he, he's a good actor. He's, he's very good at just behaviors, at, at um, looking, you know, that scene where he handed her the book and they both look at it. I mean, that, that was a, that was, he looked like a guy in his apartment who was just standing there looking at something. And, you know, people who think acting is hard, you know, it's not hard to look natural on purpose. I wonder how many people today would get that little line there about Medea. And I love that he has the black soap in his pocket. He shows it to the old woman. Uh, but, you know, that, that line about Medea, how many people are into, or, or, you know, didn't cut school with on the day they taught, you know, mythology? So here's the, to me, this, one of the saddest scenes in the movie, perhaps second only to at the very end, of the movie when they literally part ways. Um, but this is just very sad to me. And, and the movie, you know, for something out of chronology, it's sold largely, largely out of chronology. The movie actually has a lot of parallel scenes. And this woman that he's having, he's trying to recreate the, the chemistry, the magic, the bliss, I think I called it, that he had with Annie. And now in that little moment there where he's revisiting the, the pier there where he had he had been with Annie um but just the fact that you know we all do that I think or many of us who've uh, lived long enough or had relationships that may have tried to do that where you know he, he's got the lobsters there and and he's trying to recreate that wonderful memory that he had with Annie and he's with a woman who just doesn't get him and doesn't understand she sits there, um, uh, bored, uh, smoking a cigarette, looking at him, confused. And um, Annie didn't have the same humor that Alvy had, but she had 
a sense of humor and a a vibrancy that that you really saw in that moment and i really do think that's like a punch in the gut that moment because you realize that 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 scene of Annie and Alvy with the lobster with the lobsters wasn't just you know a cute little scene it, it was something that was you know we can see the juxtaposition now and we see Alvy's face and it's a it's a nice little performance by Woody Allen there you know it's a, it's very sad they picked a nice location here if you look in the background there on the right above Annie's head here that's a kiss billboard it's a billboard for Kiss, circa 1976-77. Pardon me, I'm sorry about that. Oh, those glasses she has on are so 70s. So this is where the movie starts to get, I guess it starts with the lobster scene, but this is where the movie starts to really, um, the times where I've watched it, and I love the reference to Munchkin Land, the time where I've watched it and gotten, you know, emotional um, is beginning. It begins with the lobster scene, you know, and I think more than any other Woody Allen movie, this one for me is the one where he, in all his shtick and comedy, he, he really did capture something that is, I think, true for most people. Um <clears throat> dare I say dare I say true for most people now there you see the the um, indirect reference to Anadonia she tells him that you're incap- incapable of enjoying life and this is so sad too because this is a conversation that they have here about their differences and of course that's a trope too the the he asks her spontaneously to marry him out of desperation. You know, we see that a lot in movies too, but somehow here it matters because it's just more affecting because we could see that we we never saw Alvy as the guy who would maybe do that, at least with Annie, and all of a sudden he does it, and she says, no, we're friends. We are having a, uh, they are, (laughs) they are having a conversation here that they could have had before they broke up. It's frank, it's honest, it's, um, they have an ability to communicate here that, that was stifled fundamentally when they were a couple. And I do think this movie is relatable to most people on some level because we've all had relationships and we've all, you know, met, uh, I think many of us have met our ex at a cafe or a restaurant after the breakup, sometimes gone by, and you get together to say hello, and you are kind of able to converse and relate to each other, and and somebody always wants to get back together, and somebody doesn't, maybe, and um, I think it's just beautifully portrayed here. I don't know, uh, and it's, you know... It's not an accident that it's beautifully portrayed. I think this is a the writing and is really inspired, and so are the performances. Here's a great Freudian thing in the movie. It's one of the best things in the movie, I think, in terms of just um, once again that that 
Coney Island bumper car scene at the beginning that we had in the flashback was very, uh, uh, you know, just casually presented to us. And now we had that cutting back <laughs> as Alvy crashes into these cars. We cut back to that bumper car scene. And, and uh, you know, it, it's very Freudian in, in the sense that here he is, you know, um, restaging his past traumas, restaging things that happened in his childhood, you know, uh, the idea of bumper cars. I also think in terms of screenwriting, um, a couple people wrote in, like they like it when I like, comment on um, screenwriting crap, but um, much of it is boring. But um, that, that, there was a good little note there about screenwriting that, that you could take note of uh, if you're interested. Um, the fact that Alvy, uh, when the cop pulls up and uh, the way Alvy deals with him is in a completely unexpected way. Uh, you know, we wouldn't expect this little runt Alvy to speak to an officer like that and then to tear up the ticket or something. And um, it's, it's really kind of creepy, too, that Tony Roberts is talking about he had 16-year-old twins with, you know. Ugh. Hey, it was the 70s. <laughs> but anyway, um... Oh, the screenwriting note. Yeah. So after Alvy crashes into those cars, the cop pulls up and um, what you some what sometimes people forget to do or beginning screenwriters forget to do is um, to be surprising and to, uh, I call it, be mean to your characters. You know, be mean to your characters, even if it means them, you know, every once in a while in life, people do things that are out of character. And if you set up your character right in a movie then you know in act two or three you could have that character do something wildly out of character and it could have a big effect and or, or something we don't expect that character to do and i think we have both of those scenes when alvy deals with the cop there tearing up the the ticket saying that he has a problem with authority uh you know <laughs> and we cut to him in in jail uh it's really really uh, important to be mean to your characters and to not to not love your characters so much that you don't want to harm them. When I used to read screenplays, I would always I could always, I felt like I could always tell when someone liked a character so much that they didn't want anything bad to happen to that character in the story. You have to be mean to your characters, and you see that Alan is being very mean to Alvy there, and it creates a great a great sequence in the movie where he's jailed for treating the officer this way um i love the false starts uh that are here in the movie um, the fact that he meets her once uh after they've broken up and then they meet again i don't think we need the i i, I always felt this way i don't think we need these cuts back to uh almost rehashing you know almost like the sixth sense rehashing these key moments in the narrative that we've already seen these moments you know what they should have done is done moments that we hadn't seen. Some of them are, I think, moments that we, or, uh, you know, moment, moments that we hadn't seen. But, I don't know, I don't think we need this. The chemistry that Alan and Keaton do have is very, I think some of it has to do with the fact that they were involved in real life. 
this is the saddest part of the movie to me. And I'll explain why as a final note on the movie or my final sort of comment. See, he watches her walk. She walks away out of frame. And we see it through the, you know, through the place they occupied. The last place they occupied together was that table at the cafe. He finally walks out of frame. They literally part company. And life goes on. The traffic goes on. Uh, We have that final voiceover. Most of us need the eggs. I guess I, I find that so sad because, not because, I want to be clear about this, not because Alvy and Annie didn't end up together. In fact, one of the things I like about this movie is that it's a movie about love, romantic love, in which, and most movies about romantic love uh, are like, uh, even great movies like The Graduate, you know, uh, they either end up together or they don't. It's a movie about a breakup and a parting. This movie's neither. Uh, this movie is, a, to me, about a relationship uh, that just runs its course, like relationships do. Uh, they don't hate each other. They don't love each other the same way at the end. But it's just run its course. And sometimes those can be the saddest relationships, just ones that run run their course, and you're different people, you know. After a certain amount of time in the relationship, uh, Annie was a different person than she was at the beginning. And Alvy kind of wasn't. And they both kind of, at the end of the relationship, kind of shrug and, uh, in a sense. And, you know, what can they do about it? Um, and that's why it's so sad to me. I think it's, there's nothing about the breakup that's really dramatic in the movie or sad. It's, it's the fact that it's, uh, it's the shark metaphor. They, they both kind of realize that it's different now and they're, she's changed, he hasn't, and they're just not compatible the way they always were. And that realization that they have at about the same time is, um, I don't know, it just gets me. It just gets me really sad. And the last shot in the movie um, where, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm even getting kind of, uh, kind of sad about it here, saying it, but that last shot in the movie where, it's not like the first uh, time after they broke up where they met and Alvy's trying to um, ask her to marry him. The second time they meet each other there at the end, it's just very casual. And, and while we get those flashbacks, those, that cut, cross-cutting to earlier scenes in the movie, we see them through the window in the cafe just kind of laughing and joking together. And, and it's okay. And they're both kind of putting on a face, so it's okay. And uh, it's sort of not okay. Like, Alvy, it's not just the one that got away thing. It's the realization that uh, it w- it never could have worked because that's what you mean by a relationship running its course. It's, it's, it's nobody's fault. She's the way she is. He's the way he is. And time had just altered their relationship such that it was never going to work. It, it was always going to work itself out that way. And I, I just find that the realization that the characters make is just kind of lovely to me. Well, thank you for listening. Uh, more commentaries at robcaravaggio.blogspot.com. And 
I'll see you later. Thanks again.